Things are not always uh, what they seem. Um, two people can look at the same event and they can see it in, in two different ways. Um, for instance, did you know that we have an ex-professional footballer in our midst? Did you know who that was? Uh, did you know that we also have a car rally enthusiast? I don't know. Did you ever drive? Or did, yeah, he actually drove. And did you know that just about 12 years ago, I was cycling over 100 miles a day on some events? <laughs> uh, so things are not always what they seem. Oh, yeah, well, you said Doctor Who, but what is that? It, it's a police box. It's a police telephone. <laughs> now, what makes the difference between, is it a police box or is it the TARDIS? What, what is it that makes the difference? It's a story. <laughs> All right, inside, it's big. But, but the thing is, it's a story, isn't it? There's a narrative, there's a, there's a plot, there's a tradition that if you go inside that, it's much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, and that you can whiz around through space and time. Uh, but the thing that makes the difference, some people just see a police box, some people see the TARDIS. Some people see a man in a wheelchair. Some people see a man who's contorted by a disease, a degenerative disease. Other people see... Uh, one of the most brilliant minds of our time. Uh, some people can only see the suffering. Other, other people can see a man who is just uh, stunning in applied mathematics, in astrophysics, in theoretical physics. Um, and yet this man himself has problems with seeing. Uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the last week or so, he's uh, been very public in saying that actually we, we don't need God anymore uh, to bring us here. Uh, we just need uh, the, raw, the laws of physics and, and the stuff that he's discovered. Um, now, it's not that he doesn't know the other story. He knows the other story, and he's chosen to reject it. A uh, piece of jewellery, nice piece of silver... Uh, there's a story of, um, in fact, you can hit, find this several different places. I think it's a real story. It probably happened more than once. Uh, man goes into a jeweler's to find a piece of jewellery to give to a dear friend and decides on a, a silver cross. Very nice. Um, and he's asked, uh, do you want the one with the little man on it or not? Because the person behind the counter has not heard the story. The person behind the counter doesn't know that just a, as appropriate would be a piece of silver that looks like an electric chair. Because that's what the cross is. It's, an, it's a death instrument, a torture instrument. Would they wear an electric chair if they knew? So we've been looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And we've already heard today that we're going to have to think about, sometimes we, the lace has to be in the dark room to be appreciated as the light comes in. In the jeweler's shop, the diamond is often set against black velvet so that you can see the glory of the diamond. And we're going to look at some really hard stuff today. We're going to look at the cross. Uh, we've been looking, we've already started a series on the seven words of Jesus from the cross, the seven sayings. Uh, Nigel gave us an introduction last week, and this week we're going to be looking at this saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be in paradise. We cannot make sense of this scene unless we know what the narrative is. Uh, we could look at a cross, we could even look at this monument in Texas, life-size monument in Texas. You can tell it's Texas because of the, the hat, can't you? <laughs> but we could look at that and we will not understand it if we don't have the narrative to go. We'll make mistakes. Uh, we may even have watched Mel Gibson's film, but unless we understand the narrative, we will get the wrong end of the stick and we won't understand it. These words come in the context of a few verses and chapters within Luke's Gospel. And Luke's Gospel is part, 
is one of four Gospels in, in the New Testament. It's part of the New Testament. It's part of the Bible. The context of those words, today you will be with me in paradise, is Luke's Gospel. And we're going to look at that in a minute. Um, John explains uh, that what he'd written in his Gospel <coughs> was actually enough for us to understand who Jesus was and why he came. He actually said it was enough to have life in his name. Um, in, in John chapter 21, verse 25, we read, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then just a chapter before, um, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. According to John, the story behind this scene is about life. Luke uh, does a similar thing. He explains why he's written his book. And because we're looking at Luke, we'll, we'll look at what Luke says. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And at the end of his gospel, Luke says, actually, there is more than I can tell. He says, uh, as Jesus is uh, resurrected and walking along the road with two people, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures about himself. So if we were going to do this job properly, we would be here for hours. Uh, we're not going to be here for hours, but we have to learn what is the story behind this scene. What does it mean? Uh, because John says it's about life. And Luke says it's about certainty. All right, let's um, do some hard work with Luke in a minute. Let's read some of Luke. Uh, but before we do that, let's just pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Luke's hard work in selecting things that he thought were important for us to know. Uh, we pray that you will open our eyes to see the truth behind the scene. Help us to see what's really going on. Help us to know life. Help us to know certainty. In Jesus' name. Yes, amen. amen. Okay, we're going to read quite a lot of Luke now. Uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 20, verse 19 to 26. I can't see you now, but I can see the words. Luke chapter 20. Keep up if you can. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he'd spoken a parable against them. What happened? Jesus had gone up, triumphal entry, into Jerusalem, and it, it had this wonderful thing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, and, and immediately he goes and he starts causing trouble. He goes to the temple, and he clears the temple of the money changers, and he starts confronting the religious authorities. So they've got it in for him. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now we're going to move on to Luke chapter 22 and verse 66. 
The intervening events include the Last Supper, and then they go off to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus is arrested, and now he's brought into the high priest's house. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. (coughs) Reading on into chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subversing our nation. He opposes paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Christ, a king. Hmm. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they insisted He he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and found no basis of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing deserving of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city, and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I'll have him punished, and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, Both criminals were also led out to be executed. When they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. 
Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise, or truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Of course, the irony is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Uh, But the irony is huge, because Jesus is much more than just king of the Jews. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the Christ. He is the saviour of the world. He is the son of God. He is God himself, sharing God's divine nature. He is the son of man. He's the one that's prophesied in Daniel, in the Old Testament. He is the one, God's eternal king who's going to reign on God's throne forever he is the king of the kingdom of God he is the king of kings he is the king of paradise the king of heaven not just the king of the Jews if they could see who Jesus is would they be doing what they're doing or is the horror of what's going on here that they actually know what they're doing. Some of them seem to. Some of them don't. Jesus prays for some, doesn't he? He says they don't know what they're doing. Uh, But that seems to point the finger at others. There's a guy called Dick Lucas who, who put it like this. The cross shows that given the chance, man will attempt to kill God. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourselves, yourself and us. Actually, Mark tells us that early on, after they've been crucified, that both of these criminals are taunting and mocking Jesus. (coughs) Maybe they're just repeating what they've heard others say. In verse 35, um, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36, 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Maybe they've just heard that. Maybe they're just repeating what they've heard. Some people miss out on knowing who Jesus is because they want to listen to what other people say. People who don't care about Jesus, who've written him off themselves. But some people will use that as an excuse for not knowing Jesus for themselves. Uh, No, I don't believe in the Bible. It's full of contradictions. People who say that have hardly ever read the Bible for themselves. The devil doesn't want you to know Jesus, and he loves to distort the truth. In John 8, verse 33, Jesus says to his accusers, you belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth 
for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a murderer. What are they doing? They're murdering him, but what evidence do they bring? They're bringing lies. We've seen it, haven't we, from Luke himself. He says, Jesus is very clear. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? No, give to Caesar the things of Caesar's, give to God the things of the gods. And yet they're lying and they're murdering. They are following their father. Luke shows us the same thing. In their extreme hatred of Jesus, the religious elite will tell any number of lies. Jesus was very clear, and they've distorted, even denied what he said. So don't listen to people who don't love Jesus. Um, don't, don't take their pathetic reasoning and make it your own. Uh, if you think the Bible's full of contradictions, then go and read it. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us, he cries. The irony here is that the Christ cannot save himself and them. For Jesus, saving anyone means not saving himself. So he can't do that. Jesus doesn't belong here. as the other criminal points out. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Actually, all through Luke's account, we hear that Jesus is innocent. Uh, We've heard it three times from Pilate. I find no basis of a charge. He's not worthy of death. Herod agrees with Pilate. This second criminal can see that Jesus is innocent and different to him. We're here because we deserve to be here. He doesn't belong here. The centurion can see it once Jesus has been killed. In fact, Jesus is so squeaky clean that not even trumped-up charges and lies can be made to stick. Pilate sees straight through that, doesn't he? Pilate doesn't give in to the lies. He gives in to the mob because he wants to keep everything quiet. You'd think that Jesus' enemies, if they really wanted to get rid of him, would have been able to dig up some dirt somewhere. You have to look at today's press, don't you, to, to see that if you want to destroy someone, you'll find something. Not everyone is squeaky clean. Jesus is squeaky clean. Nothing sticks. Elsewhere, the New Testament describes Jesus as the Holy One of God. Actually, it's demons who describe him as that, but they know who they're dealing with. The Holy One of God. Elsewhere, he's called meek and gentle. A lamb without blemish or defect. So what on earth is he doing here? Why is he crucified alongside two violent criminals? They're not, just, they're not just thieves. You know, thieves just steal stuff when you're not looking. Rob, these are more like bandits. They'll beat you up and run off with your stuff. We have to look beyond the obvious issue for these two as well. Um, they are paying the ultimate penalty for their crimes against the state, against Caesar. But the man on one side, we don't know which one he is, is now tortured by another thought. Not, I'm here because I deserve what... But actually, he fears punishment from God. Why is that? Well, he probably didn't hear Jesus say, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. But he knows he hasn't done that. He knows he, ha- he hasn't given the things that he should to Caesar. In fact, he's been nicking them violently. But there's something in his heart that tells him he's been stealing from God as well. So he is being punished for stealing from Caesar, but he, he fears the punishment of God for stealing from God.
What has he stolen from God? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we're told, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Those words, uh, we're in the same predicament, we're under the same sentence, actually apply to us, don't they? Uh, Which of us could honestly say that we have loved and always loved God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength? As uh, Rico Tice puts it in uh, one of the talks of Christianity Explored, if we're really honest, we've given God all of nothing. The fact is, if you died tonight, if I died tonight, you'd be under the same... You'd you'd have nothing of your own. You'd have nothing of your own that you could plead in God's court. If you died tonight, there's nothing that you could bring of your own that says, "Don't, don't cast me out of your presence. Because I, because I've, because of this about me, there's nothing that any of us could bring to God. We've given him all of nothing. Unless Jesus does something for you, you're under the same eternal sentence that this guy fears. But he knows what to do. He knows what to do. He says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows, he knows what's wrong. He knows he's got a problem, and he knows Jesus can fix it. He might not have a huge amount of theology. Uh, we, don't, we don't hear very much about his, you know, does he know the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, but, but he knows who to go to with his problem. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you gone to Jesus with that? Do you know the predicament you're in? And have you been to Jesus with that? How, how does it work, though? How does Jesus save us? I'm going to read another big chunk of scripture now. Isaiah chapter 53. Might as well read the whole thing, because it helps me pad it out to an hour. Um, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. In his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And he and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
numbered with the transgressors. Standing in our place. Do you trust him? Have you entrusted yourself to him? If you were to die tonight, what reason would you give God to let you into heaven? Is it what you've done and what you are? Or is it about Jesus standing in your place, being your righteousness? He's not just numbered among them, is he? He's actually taking that. The, the one in the middle actually was supposed to, that, that cross, they had to, probably had to cross it out. It, it says the king of the Jews, but it probably said Barabbas. He's there instead of Barabbas. Barabbas is the violent one who's got off scot-free, and Jesus is the innocent one who dies in his place. All right, maybe you're not like Barabbas, but you are like Barabbas, because you've given God all of nothing. It's almost as if this guy understands, when he says, Jesus, remember me, it's almost as if you think, he, where did he get that from? Maybe he knew Isaiah 53. Uh, maybe they taught that in thief school. Um, so we come to Jesus' reply, and we've only got about 50 minutes left, so um, that was the introduction. Uh, Jesus replied, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I say to you. This is the man who stood up and said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who doesn't lie. (laughs) He is the truth, the truth. He is the truth. And he said, today. Now, um, I quite enjoy it when the watchtower people come knocking at the door. Um, uh, well, they, they, they want to talk about God, and I want to talk about Jesus to them. And so when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, we, we talk about Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as God himself. Uh, but they like to play fast and loose with the Bible, and they like to take this and move the comma. So they would say, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, it doesn't actually matter that much to us which way it is, because we know uh, from Scripture that Jesus said, you know, the, 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 the Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, so we, ha- we have another Scripture for that, and we don't need the comma to be in one place or the other. Now, it's interesting that 81 times this, this phrase, truly I say to you, is, is it's one of the things that Jesus just loved to say in the Gospel, 81 times, 12 times in Luke. And it never is followed by today, because, I mean, why would you need to put it, truly I say to you today... I might tell you a lie tomorrow. Um, <laughs> truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why does that also work? It works in the context, doesn't it? Jesus, remember me when you come into your glory. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm. When? Today. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Because it shows that Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that actually they're they're both going to be dead by the end of the day, but actually they're both going to be in paradise together. He knows that. Even while he's there suffering, he knows this isn't where it ends. We're going somewhere else. Um, he also knows that he's going to go first. Now we know from the story elsewhere that he did die first um, because, uh, because of the religious niceties, they have to get the bodies down before the Sabbath because the religious people would be offended. Um, so they come round to clear the crosses, and, and, and they're going to finish off the guys if they've still got any life left in them. They get to Jesus, and they find out he's dead, and they actually certify it by sticking a, a, a spear right into him. If he wasn't dead, he is now, but actually the evidence is he's well and truly gone. Uh, but the other guys, uh, they get a big metal bar, and they break their legs, uh, so they suffocate very quickly. And it's all done and dusted by 6 o'clock. So when Jesus says this, he knows he has less than six hours, probably just about three hours to, to live. And that this other guy, he probably has well, less than nine hours, probably, less, probably six hours to live. And he can say to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul does say, if you're a Christian... If you love Jesus, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah. 
Amen. So you don't need to worry about where you're going if you're a believer. The uh, Bible doesn't teach about purgatory or anything like that. No, it says you die, you go to be with Jesus. And Luke wants us to be certain of this. We could play the JWs at their own game. We could say, today, Jesus wants you to know that you're going to paradise. <laughs> I don't want anyone to leave this room without knowing that they're going to go to paradise. I really don't. So what is paradise? In the Old Testament translation of the, the Hebrew, paradise is actually used to describe the Garden of Eden. And in the New Testament, it's used in Revelation, the last book, in fact, the last chapter of the last book, to describe uh, the wonderful kingdom of Jesus. Uh, paradise is where God is. Paradise is where God is, where he lives among his people, where he walks and he talks with them. And there's no interruption, where he can see them face to face. So we shouldn't get hung up about where paradise is, but that paradise is about being with Jesus. Genesis 3, we read, The Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the Old Testament people of God, the children of Israel, were actually had the amazing privilege of having God come and live among them, at first in a tent and then in various temples at different times. And this was known as the house of God. This is where God dwelt. At, at the centre of the tent, at the centre of the, the temple, uh, was the thing called the Holy of Holies, uh, where only one person could go once a year and they had to carry blood as a sacrifice to get in there. Because you can't get into the presence of God. Because of what happened in Genesis 3, you can't get into the presence of God. And we hear about this um, temple um, feature in the story, don't we? You see, guarding the way to the Garden of Eden are cherubim, angels. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Uh, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appointed, appeared to his father David. In verse 14, he made the curtain of blue, purple and crimson, and fine linen, with cherubim worked into it. So there's, at the time that Jesus dies, there is a temple in Jerusalem, and there's a curtain, and it's got cherubim on it. What are the cherubim there for? They're to remind you of Genesis chapter 3. Because there are cherubim guarding the way to the presence of God. Uh, you can't come in here. There's a flashing sword. And the moment Jesus dies, there is a link from Calvary all the way back to Eden, to paradise. Because the barrier, the cherubim, on the curtain are gone away. <laughs> the curtain is torn from top to bottom. <laughs> that barrier into God's presence is dispensed with in the moment that Jesus dies. And Jesus says, the moment I die, basically you're going to be with me in paradise. Isn't that wonderful? It just fit the whole Bible from <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. Just fits. It is all about Jesus. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he began to explain what was written in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's the one who does away with the cherubim. He opens the way to paradise. Uh, you'll be relieved to know we're nearly there. Just some points of application. One of the things that really struck me preparing this is the words of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Not you will be in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Yes. 
Now, I don't know whether you think that heaven is just this wonderful place where all pain and suffering ends and you get to be with your long-lost relatives forever and have a big party. But actually, those who've gone before to heaven aren't really thinking about you at the moment because they have something much more glorious to think about. They are face-to-face with God. They are face-to-face with Jesus. So it's already to disappoint you. I know you miss them very much. They, they don't actually miss you because they've got something wonderful and that is far better than you, quite honestly. Far better than me. Um, and that's not because they're callous. And that's not because they don't love you. It's because he is all they see. Today you will be with me in paradise. So do you see God as somebody who just gives you what you want when you want it? Or do you want God for who he is? I hope as we've read some of the account that you've just seen something of the glory of Jesus. The innocent one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's altogether glorious and wonderful. (coughs) Um, If you don't want to be with him forever, then you don't really know him. If you think it's all about something else, about him giving you stuff you want, you don't really know him. You don't really love him. I'd be a bit worried if I were you. In John chapter 6, Jesus warns, we we looked at this at Wednesday at the prayer meeting, which was brilliant, Uh, just to (laughs) 7.30 this coming Wednesday. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then verse 36, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Are you thirsty for other things? Do you run after other things? Do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what you're going to do tonight, what's on telly tonight, has it recorded it? Do you worry about those things? Do you run around worrying about those things? That's because you're thirsty. And Jesus says, you drink the water I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And he says, I am, I am the bread of life. Eat me. (laughs) Not in some macabre religious sense. He said, just come and feast yourself on me. You'll never be hungry again. Pray that God will make Jesus your biggest treasure. The reason you live. Okay, second application is how to be patient and persevering in suffering. Um, pointed out already that Jesus probably died up to three hours before this guy. Um, remember what the other guy said? He said, uh, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. What does Jesus do? He says, you're going to be with me. The other guy, he says, you're going to be with me in paradise today. And at some point later, he pops off to go and be with the Father. He doesn't take the other guy off the cross, does he? He leaves him there. He's up for three hours, perhaps, where Jesus has already died. He's still there. How does he keep going? It's the most excruciating. It's a horrible way to kill people. Very painful. Very humiliating. Jesus does talk, doesn't he, about us taking up our cross and following him. He doesn't say, uh, oh, there's no cross, there's no suffering, you're just going to have endless health, wonderful wealth, and uh, you, can, you can have shoulder pads and, and bright shiny teeth and wonderful hair. I have none of these, but I do have Jesus. <laughs> how, does he, how does he last all that time? What does he hold on to? He holds on to the promise of Jesus. Yeah. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you know, has Jesus ever said that to you? You will be with me in paradise? Yeah. 
Is your life really difficult? We, we heard earlier about, I just think it fits together beautifully, the, the darkness of the room and the light shining on the lace. Enjoy what God has given you in Jesus, the promise he's given Amen. you. Amen. Hold on to that. <coughs> Look to him, and as the old chorus says, the things of the world will grow st- strangely dim. Yeah. Hold on to what Jesus is and what he's promised you. Sometimes when things aren't going our way, we get impatient, have a hissy fit, we start throwing toys out of the pram. It's not fair. This should not be happening to me. If this is how God treats me, I don't think I'm going to bother anymore. I'm not going to the prayer meeting, certainly. There's a brilliant book I recommend, uh, which is by a guy called C.J. Mahaney, called The Cross-Centred Life. Yes. Get hold of that. Now, if, some, if you ask C.J. Mahaney, how are you doing, C.J., he'll say, better than I deserve. That comes from here, doesn't it? We're getting what we deserve. <laughs> I'm doing better than I deserve. Stop whinging and look at the cross. <laughs> the unfair thing is what's happening to Jesus for you. Yes. Yes. He's done nothing wrong. We deserve a lot worse than we get. And he's promised us paradise with him forever. So hold on to that. He wants you to be assured of that today. You're not to go out of this room not knowing that you're going to be in paradise with Jesus one day. And then when you walk out that door, you can take anything. You'll come back in here with testimonies of how good Jesus has been. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, We do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yes. As, we not, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Yes. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Has Jesus told you you're going to be in paradise with him? You can be sure about that. You need to be sure about that. Are you? There's a lovely old hymn my fellow strict Baptist, Gadsby's Hymns, yes. a guy called John Tyler wrote the second Bible. The second Bible. It was black <laughs> and it had gold lettering on the front just to prove it. Yeah. Listen to this. Sovereign ruler of the skies, the king, <laughs> the sovereign, the one who's the king of paradise of heaven, sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, All my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. His decree who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native place and time, all appointed were by him. He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my times shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. There is a day when Jesus will say, today... Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's probably not today. But there will be a day when Jesus comes and says, come on, come be with me in paradise. He that formed me in the womb, he shall guide me to the tomb. All my times shall ever be ordered by his wise decree. Times of sickness, times of health, times of penury. I guess that's lots of wonga. Times of wonga and of wealth. Times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief, times the tempter's power to prove, time to taste the Saviour's love. Uh, 
The, the in thing in uh, New Frontiers is we call them seasons, okay? Times, seasons. That's, that's something I knew when I, I've learned. <laughs> All must come and last and end as shall please my heavenly friend. Plagues and deaths around me fly till he bids I cannot die. Not a single shaft, and this is talking about an arrow, not a single shaft can hit till the God of love sees fit. How happy we should be. How confident we should be. If you're one of his, there is a day when Jesus will say, today you will be with me in paradise. Last bit of application. Blessed assurance. Now, we've been singing a song by Francis Crosbury, uh, To God Be the Glory. Uh, I'm afraid uh, the, the song, Blessed Assurance, Fatfish have not yet written a new tune for it. Uh, let me tell you a bit about Francis Crosbury, or the, the 19th century Morpheus. <laughs> Does she wear those glasses because she's cool? Well, I think she's one of the coolest ladies that ever lived. But no, she doesn't. She wears them because at six weeks old, she was blinded by the incompetence of a doctor. Uh, She lived from 1820 to 1915. And she wrote, you can't believe this, she was a Methodist, and uh, Wesley and Watts wrote thousands of hymns. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. Thankfully, we don't have many of them. Um, (laughs) But we do have to God be the glory, and we do have blessed assurance. Listen to what she said about her blindness. This is somebody who knows her saviour. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns of praise to God if I'd been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. It's it's the dark room, isn't it? It's the dark room. All I can see is the light of Jesus sometimes. And that's a good thing, because I'm not distracted by everything else. Now... Uh, this this hymn is from uh, it's actually found in a, a book that we lovingly called Sacred Songs and Sea Shanties or Sacred Songs <laughs> um, and the guy who composed it Sankey actually he, he he there's a little account here of meeting some people who've been fighting in the Transvaal in 1900 so I guess is that the Boer War? Boer War yeah there we are and he said during the recent war in the Transvaal. <laughs> said a gentleman at my meeting in Exeter Hall, London, in 1900, when the soldiers going to the front were passing another body of soldiers whom they recognised, their greetings used to be, 494 boys, 494. And the salute would invariably be answered with, six further on boys, six further on. Uh, The significance of this is that in Sacred Songs and Solos, a number of copies of the small edition of which had been sent to the front, number 494 was God be with you till we meet again. And six further on from 494 or number 500 was Blessed Assurance. Now we're going to sing that now. I don't want anyone to leave the room without knowing this assurance. So if you don't know this assurance, uh, please come up while we're singing this and Nigel and Callie and others will, will pray with you and we'll talk with you because... Luke wants us to be certain about the things that we've heard.